Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and most merciful Father, we pray that you would teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, that we would be able to persevere until the end. Give us all understanding that we might be able to keep your law, to be able to deserve it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, in the way of your promises, as we delight in you. Lord, incline our hearts to your promises and your testimonies, and not for selfish gain. Fill us with your Spirit, that we might be able to accomplish all these things through his work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, and the floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I think there's always a sense where the heyday is what we aspire to, what we look to. But I think one of the greatest losses in the modern church is that their songs have no depth and diversity. And what I mean by depth and diversity is not how many people use those terms today. But if we were to take all of our hymns, our songs, and more specifically in modern times, even at the turn of the 20th century, they almost always fall into one single category. Praise songs. And what I mean by that is not praise songs, as we mentioned last week, of of ones that are filled with awe where we speak and declare of God's goodness and praise and wonder and glory and sing adoration unto Him. 
praise songs in a more generic term of uplifting, encouraging, positive. Almost all classic hymns, any written before the turn of the 20th century, would almost always end with a stanza which was quite depressing when thought of it, but would actually be uplifting and encouraging to all who sung it. It would have a stanza that would deal with death and the resurrection, the hope of heaven. Now again, classifying these things can be difficult. How do you uh, choose which bucket to be able to put them in? But I think generally speaking, you can see a sense of this truth that even in the ones that have some form of uplifting beat with melody, the keys, uh, if you were to look at the keys on a piano and be able to try and classify them and you were to play the happy keys, you might call them. Most of these hymns or songs follow a simple chord progression of the first, the fifth, the sixth, minor, and the fourth. And all of these popular chord progressions, no matter what key it's played in generally, is very uplifting. They're chord progressions of what some have called ones of joy and happiness. However, in contrast, if you look particularly to the songbook, which is revealed to us through Scripture, the book of Psalms, we see that it merely does not always cover those of which is uplifting and positive, joyous exclamations and praises. That as John Calvin calls it, it's the anatomy of the soul, the whole range of human emotions. There's not only those psalms which are filled with praise and thanksgiving, there's psalms of lament, psalms of trust, psalms of confession, psalms of wisdom, the royal psalms, singing of the kingdom and the Messiah, and peccatory psalms, singing of judgment, historical psalms, singing of what we are to remember, descriptive psalms, those which we teach. And the psalms, therefore, have many more notes than that happy chords of the piano. There's ones filled with minor keys. And the Psalms were written to be able to help us as we sing praise to God as well, as Paul points out, that we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. To be able to equip us as we are pilgrims in this life. Now, although we might feel uncomfortable about singing some of these psalms or songs, I think one of the most difficult would probably be the imprecatory psalms. Or hymns even today. If we're to sing this song that we just read from Exodus chapter 15, how would that make us feel? Maybe a little bit awkward. So what can we sing? And why, more importantly, do we sing this broad range of notes which are found on the piano of the Lord's songbook and God's words to us? First, we need to understand the Lord's songbook. We must understand what impeccatory psalms are. Impeccatory psalms, a great word for you to be able to use sometime this week, I'm sure, But the category of psalms in the Bible which the psalmist prays or he praises God 
particularly for his judgment or curses upon the enemies, their enemies. These psalms often express deep distress or anger over the actions of the adversaries and call upon God to intervene on the behalf of the psalmist. Or in today's, praise God for the judgment rendered. Great examples of impeccatory psalms include Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Now again, it's great that we all confess, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, but we must in some way or another understand that when we say all, it means all, but that doesn't mean that we understand how all Scripture is breathed out by God, useful for teaching, correction, training, and all righteousness that the man of God may be complete. We might agree that all psalms, including impeccatory psalms, are breathed out by God, but we might not then understand how that is useful for training, rebuking, or tra- and teaching in righteousness that we might be complete. And if we merely just say we don't understand it, then push it to a side, then I think we miss one of the great things that God has blessed us with. His whole word. That God's word is not just written for those who are up on the high mountain singing high praises, but God's word is also written for those who are trapped, ensnared, in difficult situations where they feel defeat is around the corner. As parents, we would love to hear our children pray the Psalms. As they sit down and pray, O Lord, my shepherd, shall not want. Or to sing Psalm 23. However, we might be worried if our children sat down and started to pray through Psalm 69 and said, let their table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let them become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living, and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Imagine Nora praying that maybe across her brother or sister for doing something to them. Again, you could argue all Scripture is breathed out by God. But what role does these type of psalms and songs play in the life of a believer? How would we react to something like this? As we saw that the people of God walked across the dry land, and they sang this glorious song as they praised God. Yet when we get to verse 3 and verse 10, we as readers do not have the same sense of praise and adoration. It might be hard for us to be able to imagine God's people singing these words, both young and old. However, we need to understand that this is biblical. Although it might be uncomfortable for us, the problem is not with the words of Scripture. 
The problem lies with us. We need to be able to understand when we're talking about aspects like this that when we read in the Old Testament, it's very visible. The glory is external and praise and adoration. But what we understand in in the New Testament is it's not merely what is visible, there's an invisible aspect of it. That not all the children of Abraham are, as Paul says, the children of Abraham, the heirs of the faith. What we see is that it's passed through the faith that belongs to them. So too, as we read through passages like this, we need to take Paul's words into account in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It would be perfectly fine for any of us to be able to pray Psalm 69 with the understanding of what Paul is speaking about. He's not talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about spiritual rulers and authorities. So when we talk about enemies and warfare and aspects like this and God defeating our adversaries, we're not talking about our neighbors, colleges, family members, political opponents. And Paul makes a distinction for us to be able to understand what he describes as these spiritual forces. So when we read in the Bible of enemies and foes, what we immediately think of, most likely, is flesh and blood. But what we need to understand is the spiritual aspect of those walking in darkness, whom they follow. And this can be helpful when we sing these difficult psalms or songs. This is not a cry and a pray, a prayer, against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces. So we're able to sing these with this understanding of what we are singing about. The second aspect is the Lord's victory. We need to notice in these hymns and psalms, center around God and who He is and what He has done. As we pointed out several times in our study, the Israelites have done almost nothing in their own salvation. They cry out. God sends Moses, raises him up. Moses goes in, declares God's word. God shows his power and his might and his glory. The people listen and obey God's word through the sacrificial offering of the Passover lamb. But it is God who passes over. It is God who actually saves them from death. They respond in in faith and obedience to God's word. And again, the focus of this is on who God is and what he has done. Look at verse 3 where they sing, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That it is specifically about who God is that these petrified people who were standing there before, shaking in their sandals, were not equipped to be able to fight a battle against one of the world-leading armies of the day. But God had told them and promised them that he would fight for them. 
They didn't need to fight for him. He would fight for them. They only were to be silent. You see that in verse 14 of chapter 14. That God is the one who fights our battles for us. One set of commentators points out that this poem represents the first explicit statement of the warlike nature of God. That this theme of God as warrior became a recurrent refrain in the Old Testament. That the Exodus event itself became an important archetype of the biblical tradition. A means of telling and retelling God's acts of deliverance. And God often dramatically revealed himself to the Israelites as the one who saved them from physical harm. That he fought against their enemies. Your God was willing to stand between death and salvation. Make a way for them. And when our focus is not so much on the enemies per se, but on what, who God is, that it's focused on God as the warrior and victor, that we're not merely just calling down fire from heaven, but what we're focusing on is God and His justice and His judgment. That we turn to Him and, and pray to Him that He would do what He has promised in His Bible. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And when we sing songs and hymns like this that seek to be able to focus on God and His victory, we're praying that God would take care of what He said He would take care of. That we're trusting in God to be able to protect us, to be able to deliver us. Listen again to how the people of God praise God for who He is, And what he has done, you see this in verses 6 and 7. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Here again, the center is on who God is and what he will do. That we rest in him and him alone. When we feel overwhelmed with all these burdens, when we feel overtaken and in a place of despair, not again merely from physical flesh and blood adversaries, but when we're wrestling with with sin and Satan and temptations in our lives, and we feel overcome and overwhelmed by them, we turn not to ourselves, but we turn to God and say, God, deliver us from evil. Keep us from the evil one. Save us. And when we think about this applied to Christ, particularly in the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, we turn to Christ as the Lord protector and his kingship, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains. Now Christ then fulfills the office of the king. That Christ executes the office of the king in subduing us to himself, that we become his servants, in ruling as his oversight as king, in defending us and restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. That here God, Christ, through all of his power and might, as he rules supreme over all things, 
He defends us. He restrains and conquers not only his enemies, but our enemies. The duties of a king was not merely just to sit on the throne and take all this power. It's to be able to rule and, and protect their kingdom. To restrain and conquer the enemy. And this is what Christ does for his people. This is why Samuel warned the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they sought their own king. And Samuel warned them and said, you're not, you're, you, you are rejecting God as your king. God is the one who protects you. God is the one who is ruling over you. This is a glorious truth that is, should lead us again to praise and adoration that we think about those depths and despair and, and we go to God and say, protect us, restrain evil from us. Conquer this enemy. And thus we move from that uncomfortable state of how do we sing this? Why do we pray this? Actually, we sing this all the time. We just don't use this language. Specifically, why did Jesus go on the cross, die on the cross, and be buried in the grave? Well, the Bible uses this language of him defeating. He defeated sin, 2 Corinthians, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He defeated Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. And he defeated death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. Time and time again, there is this language of this warlike victory of what Christ has done and accomplished for his people. Glorious truth. To be able to rest in and to be able to pray and praise God. The third thing that we see in this is the Lord's justice. And I don't truly believe we can ever seek to be able to fathom the Lord's justice. How we appropriately deal with sin. It doesn't matter who we are. We're all sympathetic to sin. Just like when David was approached by Nathan regarding the parable of the sheep, speaking of Uriah the Hittite and David's adultery with Bathsheba. His immediate response when it deals with someone else was judgment. Well, he must repay. Condemnation. But yet when Nathan turns and says, you are the man, his cry was not for judgment and condemnation. His cry was for mercy. Now we know this feeling when we're wrong or hear the story, that we can resonate. We always want justice, condemnation, judgment. However, if the story is about us, or someone we know, or someone we love, often we do not cry out for justice and condemnation. We, we go to their defense. We explain our sin. We rule in favor of ourselves. We make the sin not seem so big. 
Now, we have other sins we'd gladly point out in other people, but often the ones we struggle with are the, often the ones that we are sympathetic towards. And we understand. And so, too, we become sympathetic with sin. We've become sympathetic to those in the Bible. And we would not be fit to be able to serve on the jury because we might be able to say even to the point that they are guilty of this sin, often the next part of the justice is what judgment is then rendered, the punishment must be served for that sin. But if we as the jury were to sit there, we would be guilty of the same sins. But even to be able to stay, take it a step further, to be able to say we love and we love God's justice is one thing. Often what we normally do is that we, we pray for God's justice, but we don't move to that next level where we praise God for his justice. Again, we are sympathetic towards sin. I think this help hinders us. But the psalmist specifically says in Psalm 76, Surely your wrath against men brings praises. That here the response as we cry out and we see God's justice is praise and adoration to God. And it's truly hard for us as sinful beings to be able to truly fathom how God, the thrice holy, all-knowing, just, ever-righteous, deals with sin. There are no gray portions Because God is able to search the hearts. He knows the motives. He knows all the evidence. He sees all things. He knows all things. The actions that were done, the actions that were not done. And His justice and His judgments are perfect. People often ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And the problem is the question. And this question can only be applied to one person in all of human history. And the answer to that question in that one instance is it was for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. When Christ was condemned and crucified, that Jesus is the only good person who has ever walked the earth. And as the Catechism puts it again so succinctly, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and which is to come. Now often when we think about this, we think of every other sin or someone else's sin or not the ma- every major sin. Every sin that I did not commit. Every horrible sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that every sin The wages of sin is death. Again, sin defined by God, not defined by us. And when we see in a passage like this that destruction comes upon the people of Egypt, it comes through the right hand of God, verses 12 and 6, but specifically comes because of God's righteous anger. 
verses 7, 8, and 10. It stems from God, who He is, His justice, His vindication. And once we understand who God is, the thrice holy God, and how He deals with sin, we should have two responses. The first is we cry out with praise and adoration that sinners get what they deserve. The wicked hearts of man will be judged for all their wicked sins that they have done. This is what we see in the hymn of victory in Exodus chapter 15. There are no innocent people that drowned in the Red Sea. We not only see it in Exodus, but throughout all the Old Testament, but specifically throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation. We're going to have a great, difficult time when we all get to heaven, and the bulletins are handed out, and we're ready to be able to sing praises to God, and we start reading what's in the book of Revelation. Just to be able to name a few, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, when the 24 elders praise God and they sing, the nations raged. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You turn a couple of pages later, in the third of the seven bowls of wrath, the angels cry out and sing, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Again, see, their praise and adoration is centered around who God is, but then also through his, his nature, his being, his attributes, how he delivers that justice. The praise is not based upon our sinful feelings of dealing with sin. Generally, not at all. But in it, we understand this is an act of God's perfect justice and His holiness. I mean, you could continue through Revelation, maybe in your spare time today, read through chapters 18 and 19, and realize this is the songs that God's people will be singing. The songs that we will sing when we get to heaven. But the second aspect of this that should lead us even more to be able to sing this with gusto, not only that sinners get what they deserve, but we who were sinners don't get what we deserve. That what we understand is we deserve what we are singing about. We deserve God's wrath, judgment. We deserve death. But yet, God has given us and shown us mercy and grace that we do not have to face His wrath. Actually comes exactly from what we do not deserve. That's the actual definition of these two words, mercy and grace. That God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman under the law 
Not that he might just be able to sweep his wrath under the rug, to be able to forget about it, but that our punishment, what we deserve, would be taken upon by him, bearing our sins on the cross, all of our iniquities, all of the wrong, all of the things that we should be condemned for, for what we have done. Christ claims them and says, I will take them. But his righteousness, the word in which he, the way he walked and lived, becomes ours. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners deserve wrath. But yet while we were still sinners deserving that wrath, Christ died for us. He continues and says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We deserve the wrath. And that songs that we sing should be about us deserving this wrath and condemnation. But we have a different lens to be able to look through it that now Christ has been able to take that wrath upon himself. To be able to die for us that we go from sinners to saints, from enemies to children of God. That while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, now, because of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, came and the wrath has been taken away from what we deserve. Changes a different light as we sing of these psalms and these hymns. That we sing on the other side of the Red Sea, knowing that that's what we deserve to be in the Red Sea. We cannot merely sing of these psalms just thinking of enemies, of flesh and blood, but these spiritual forces, these enemies of who we used to be. What a glorious truth that God has given us His whole songbook that we might be able to praise who He is and what He has done and what He and how He has saved us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for all of your word, every portion of your scripture. Lord, help us to be able to rest in a passage like this, Lord, where we see who you are, Lord, and what you have done and accomplished for your people. Lord, help us to be able to see the truth of the gospel as we read through Psalms like this, that we realize that we deserve that wrath and condemnation, but yet, because of your love, you have shown to us through Christ Jesus that while we were still sinners, that you died for us. While we were still enemies, you reconciled us. Lord, help us to be able to live this truth. Know this in our word, in our, in, from the word in our hearts, but also even to be able to praise you for who you are and what you have done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com.
Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.